Welcome to Snack Break. We speak to experts mostly about policy, but also about snacks. North Korea is again at the forefront of U.S. foreign policy with the collapse of the 2019 Hanoi summit between U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un after the two leaders failed to reach an agreement on the dismantling of North Korea's nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. Despite the warming of relations between Trump and Kim since 2018, the North Koreans continue to work on their weapons program with the added concern that their missiles may be able to reach mainland United States. Is there still hope for a future agreement? Are U.S. goals even realistic? And what's the path forward? This is Snack Break. I'm Arup Mukherjee, and joining me today is Dr. John Park, the director of the Korea Project at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. John, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure being here. So now you are an expert on a country that, like, nobody knows anything about. How did you manage to pull that one off? Well, Arup, it's basically a puzzle. I think North Korea has defied all the odds, and I think when you analyze a country like that, you have to be resourceful. Uh, so the key area that I've been looking at the country uh, at the, is through the lens of how they've been evading sanctions. If you follow the money, you get to see an organizational structure and you get to see how the regime as an organism you know, evolves, adapts, and so forth. So that, that's the main area of trying to extrapolate movements in other areas as well. And it's like, kind of like studying the black market, right? I mean, because there are so many heavy sanctions. Is this through, are, are they getting things through Russia and China or through remittances? I mean, how is this working? It's been documented that yeah. the North Koreans have been improving in terms of their evasion capabilities. But as you look at the different practices, it still raises the question of what is this organization like? And through the research that I've been doing, and the latest iteration of that was with Dr. Jim Walsh at MIT, we've been looking at it through the lens of North Korea Incorporated. So if you think of it as a business concern, there are profits, there are costs, there are revenues, uh, and there's a lot of shift. And so with that, if you map that out, you get to see the practices, the partners, and the pathways. And this is a part of the regime where the adaptation component is something that we continue to underestimate as a policy community. So they're good at it. I mean, they're able to uh, evade these sanctions regimes fairly effectively? There's a learning curve. And if you see their activities, there's this accumulated learning and evading sanctions. I think an analogy, a medical analogy is helpful. If you think about the current antibiotics, uh, issue right now and drug resistance to antibiotics by applying more and more sanctions on North Korea. In the primary instance, there are setbacks. But in the secondary and tertiary spaces, you see this type of adaptation where it's like drug resistance. So certain elements of the North Korean regime, as, as we label it North Korea Incorporated, we're seeing superbug traits. And that's the element where it sounds counterintuitive, but in key instances where you apply more and more targeted sanctions, you help the North Korean regime get better at some of these evasion practices because it's taking place in the marketplace. And the quick thing about the marketplace, I think it's very important to note that if you look at risk in the marketplace, if the market participants find out a way to monetize that risk, that is something that creates efficient markets in the sense that with the elevated risk of doing sanctions for some of these private Chinese companies and the Chinese marketplace in particular, uh, this risk, an elevated risk, scares them off. But for others, they're attracted by the risk, they monetize the risk, and they charge the North Korean clients more money in commission fees to do a procurement activity. That's good for the North Korean regime. That's not good for us. What exactly are they doing? Is it very, um, I mean, it sounds like I, I remember reading uh, a couple of years ago about these kind of ships that were just stopped in the Pacific, right? They were kind of either unmarked ships or something yeah. like that. They'd been carrying... Uh, goods toward the North Koreans. Is it, is it sort of that kind of stuff? Is it people going over the border? I mean, what, what does it actually look like? 
in sum, they're getting good at doing business. And that's a part where it's hiding in the open. It's not the idea of the old clandestine routes, uh, rusty North Korean freighters being shouted by U.S. Uh, naval assets and things along those lines. So by embedding in the Chinese marketplace and key hubs in Southeast Asia as well, uh, North Korean actors uh, using middlemen uh, and using market mechanisms have become much more effective at procurement. Some of it is uh, clearly illicit, but the vast majority of it is benign. And there is this element of if you build a commercial channel and the vast majority of the products and goods passing through that channel is benign, you've essentially created a dual-use technology in that you can then transfer, procure illicit items, which tend to be smaller, easier to essentially mask in terms of this overall flow. And that's what we're seeing grow more and more in parallel uh, with the increasing uh, application of sanctions. So this is how you learn about how this place works, is by seeing how they do business. Are you also able to learn by either, there are people, there are defectors too, there are people who leave North Korea. Is that where we get a little bit more about what life is like in North Korea? I feel like it feels like such a difficult place to kind of understand. It is difficult to understand, but it is a function of different elements of North Korean society. Uh, if you look in South Korea, as you mentioned, the defector community, there are now over 30,000 defectors. Uh, the challenge of researching, conducting research in this community is that there are a lot of misperceptions, a lot of myths in the sense of how we perceive this community. Mm -hmm. I think the dominant myth is that it's a monolithic group. These are individuals who left because of food security issues and they voted with their feet. That's certainly true of the earlier generation of the defectors, and that's the largest number. But in recent years, we've uh, had this very smaller number, but very significant group of individuals from the perspective of the business that they used to do on behalf of the North Korean regime. So another way to say it is these are the elites. And as they defected, uh, and we have the opportunity to interview them, uh, the two challenges that we face, one is how can we verify what they're saying is in, indeed factual, that they actually did it? And the second is uh, how do we better understand from their perspective what they did? So the first part is pretty straightforward. If you look at the tacit knowledge of doing business, it's very difficult to fake it uh, beyond a certain point. You can talk about some business transactions that you did, but once you get into the nitty-gritty of the universal equation of P equals R minus C, profit equals revenue minus costs, then you look at variable and fixed costs, how contracts are, the minutia of doing business, you only really get the, the real McCoys in terms of these defectors. The second part of it, uh, looking at it from their perspective, uh, is how they've developed their local partnerships. And as you hear them talk more and more, from a national security lens, it looks like they've invented some spectacular, very sophisticated evasion network. Mm -hmm. But if you use a private sector business lens, that's just how expats do business in places like China and Southeast Asia. Well, what do you mean by that? Flesh that out a little bit. If the normalcy yeah. with which they do their business yeah. is the striking factor yeah. when you view it from, say, like a business school case study approach. Yeah. And that was one of the challenges when we did this research. What kind of methodology? This clearly is not a large end type of study. Yeah. And so qualitative research is important here, but how you do it. And this is the instance of the business school case study approach where you're looking at it from the perspective of a manager and how he or she is dealing with challenges. Clearly, they're going to look at ways to maximize an opportunity opportunity yeah. or reduce challenges. And that's what we saw some of these North Korean managers do inside of the Chinese marketplace. I still don't quite understand, like, how are they able to operate? I mean, this is crazy, because you kind of, the, the story that you get told is that it is just, there's heavy sanctions, nobody, no, nothing gets in, nothing gets out, all this sort of stuff. How are they able to do it openly? Isn't that a problem? Don't people catch them? I mean, wh wh how does that work? So there is an element of design 
there, there are certain parts of this network that the North Korean regime has developed methodically, uh, starting with the uncle of the current leader, Kim Jong-un. Uh, his uncle, Jang Song-tak, is essentially the creator of North Korea Incorporated. Uh, he's the one who launched it, uh, the stumbling blocks. He resurrected certain elements of it and refined and improved and eventually created uh, what we know as North Korea Incorporated. But the part that I think is striking is that when you look at how the North Korean regime has uh, encountered some luck along the way, being next to the world's largest growing economy, uh, in many respects, is blind luck. That wasn't a part of the North Korean plan, but they've clearly benefited from that. And this is the element of embedding in the Chinese marketplace that gives uh, an important element of inoculation as well. If you look at efforts to apply pressure on the Chinese authorities to apply more sanctions, increase the implementation against North Korean targets inside of the Chinese marketplace, that becomes a sovereignty issue. And so that's an element also with this migration into the Chinese marketplace is another huge factor in helping North Korea Inc. thrive. I see. And, and that's how they get their internet too, right? It's through China? Is that so they supply a lot of their connection, I mean, any kind of movies, things like that, that's how they, it, it's through the Chinese marketplace? In the beginning parts, you saw the smuggling of DVDs yeah. and other entertainment, uh, other information sources. But the part about the China-North Korea border is that it is very porous. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very wary and very cautious in making geographic comparisons, but certain elements of the China-North Korea border look a lot like Afghanistan, Pakistan, AFPAC, in the sense of free movement of goods and peoples. Mm -hmm. And when you look at how they've monetized these corridors, uh, bribery at the local level isn't seen as a criminal activity. It's just a cost of doing business. And so as a part of a conduit and a network, uh, there is this uh, structured and rather free flows of goods and peoples where you look at this type of activity and on the backs of that flow, you also have the flow of information. If you think of it from the perspective of the North Korean traders, for them to go to the Chinese side to do the procurement of wholesale products, and these are the lower end, I would say this is the type of activity for the 99%. What I mentioned earlier is really mm -hmm. the 1% North Korean incorporated and how they're embedded farther afield inside of China and Southeast Asia. But for members of the 99% and the upper echelon of that group, to go to China, to stay at a hotel in China, they have access to BBC, CNN, all of the information. What we find interesting is in the survey results for those colleagues who've done research uh, in this interesting mercantile type class, they're looking not at information that could uh, foment type of people up, you know, bottom up people revolution in North Korea, but rather information they can monetize. And mm -hmm. so that's an element where in terms of this uh, flow of information, it's being used for a very, very specific commercial purpose. So is this representative? I mean, you mentioned this is a myth that people have that, that, uh, about North Korea and how it operates. Is it kind of representative of the, of the fallacy of American foreign policy toward North Korea, that it's been based on this assumption that they're backwards and they won't be able to develop this stuff. And nope, look, turns out over the last 10 or 20 years, they've been able to develop sophisticated uh, nuclear technology. Um, it, has there been that neglect by the foreign policy community in assuming that they are way more closed than they actually are? That, that's a part of uh, the perception of North Korea being closed. Uh, that is a challenge of doing the research because you encounter a number of these very strongly held views. In many instances, I wouldn't say that they're wrong. It's just that they're, they're outdated. It was true at one point in time, mm -hmm. but North Korea has evolved and changed and adapted uh, in a remarkable way. And so an element of chipping away at this chronic underestimation of North Korea as we see it now, uh, we need to view it with different analytical tools. Uh, one big part of the analysis that we still focus on, uh, I would say to our detriment, is to monitor what's just happening inside of North Korea. 
And if you look at it from the perspective of the markets, mm -hmm. there has been encouraging signs of bottom-up marketization. The beginning illegal black markets that have become more legit, and they've uh, co-opted uh, apparatus elements of the state, secured organizations and others, and mm -hmm. things like that. But it's the element of North Korea Incorporated <clears throat> and how they've embedded and how the tentacles have moved to other parts of the world. Uh, that's the part that we don't really see factored into the analysis, and again, to our detriment, because that leads to significant underestimation of North Korean capabilities. So um, this kind of uh, adds a twist to Donald Trump's, uh, the, the appeal that he's trying to make to, to Kim Jong-un about uh, opening up to the world and, um, and economic progress. I mean, of course, they have a very, very small economy, but part of that part of that appeal at least seemed to be directed at, hey, look, if you're open with and you trade and all this stuff with other places, but maybe is Kim Jong-un sitting there saying, actually, we're a little more open than you think we are? That's a very important area that we need to peel back some of the layers out. One part of it is if you look at how Chairman Kim has laid out what he's called the new strategic line, it's pretty transparent. Uh, at the beginning of each year, uh, the, the leader of North Korea, Chairman Kim Jong-un, gives what's called the New Year's Day Address. And it's essentially laying out the game plan for the year ahead. There's no mystery to it. What is remarkable is that there's been a significant amount of consistency in terms of what he's laid out in terms of the goals and achieving those goals. Uh, and in the most recent one, it was the focus on checking the box on a minimal nuclear deterrent. So self-defense, we've mm -hmm. taken care of that. We have uh, nuclear weapons that can range and threaten the United States, and we have held the hostile policy of the United States at bay. Now we need to focus on developing the national economy. He's very careful not to talk about reform, but economic development, essentially doing more business and helping the 99% component uh, build up. And so from that angle, President Trump's read of it and encouraging and trying to incentivize Chairman Kim to go the route of economic development in return for denuclearization mm -hmm. is an important starting point. But the element of how much impact uh, the North Korean regime uh, is feeling from the sanctions, that's the part where the different layers uh, aren't really appreciated in the sense that you're looking at it from a black and white type of perspective. So if you think of an analogy, sanctions are working in that it makes the North Korean regime uh, much more confined. It, it creates a constraints uh, mm -hmm. for the activities that it can do. But there is a tremendous coping mechanism in terms of North Korea Incorporated. So if you think of the water surrounding the North Korean regime with the sanctions, uh, that's certainly the, the level of the water is rising. But you know, you're essentially seeing the North Korean regime with a nostril uh, above the water level. And so that's the element that is much more resilient than mm -hmm. we think. So as a coping mechanism, uh, they can weather the storm of more and more sanctions. But clearly, that's the bottleneck in terms of being able to do the economic development that Chairman Kim wants to do. And that's the basis of negotiation. But that's really an option rather than this necessity aspect in terms of the short term. Yeah. So if you view that as, you know, this is a one-shot deal to do economic reform, and we know that you're uh, under essentially increasing pressure from the sanctions, there comes a conclusion that time is on our side. But it's this coping mechanism where the North Korean regime is built for this yeah. type of weathering, these type of storms. Why do we care about this so much? I mean, why are mm -hmm. we investing so I mean, President Trump now has flown across uh, the globe twice uh, to meet with, uh, with Kim. What, why does it matter so much to the United States? I mean, sometimes I wonder if Trump actually just cares more about the Nobel uh, Peace Prize than he actually does uh, Korean peace. But, but for, for the United States strategically, why does it matter? It's amazing how it feels like it's background noise right now, but 2017, tensions on the Korean Peninsula were at historic highs. 
Uh, it might sound like hyperbole, but uh, by different insider accounts now, we're on the brink of military action. Uh, the reason why was that North Korea under Kim Jong-un was making progress on intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons at a pace that the intelligence community and others uh, thought it would take five, seven years. He was breaking technological break uh, right. thresholds uh, basically in a matter of weeks in some instances. Yeah, he claimed they, they'd done a new thermonuclear test. Right. Whether it was thermonuclear or hydrogen, yeah. uh, you know, it's still debatable. Yeah. Uh, the seismic activity shows that it was on a scale that qualitatively was different from previous tests. So yeah. the six tests yeah. put it in the major leagues category. But the part that was the source of the biggest panic at that time, and to be frank, it was panic, uh, we knew very little about Chairman Kim Jong-un. Yeah. Uh, he was on the scene only a few years. Uh, father had passed away, Kim Jong-il, uh, very suddenly December of 2011. Uh, he emerges on the scene, uh, very little information about him other than these anecdotal pieces about him going to a Swiss boarding school and so forth. And during this period where he was ratcheting up and doing these technological breakthroughs, mm -hmm. the only American citizen who had met him up to that point was Dennis Rodman. <laughs> yeah. And so the sense of we have no intel on this guy, we don't know how yeah. he thinks, he could be a madman, and that was the formulation. A yeah. madman has the ability to range and put at risk the continental United States. So the summer of 2017 yeah. was viewed after the July 4th, 2017, first intercontinental ballistic missile test by the North Koreans. Mm -hmm. As they were getting better at this technology, uh, there was this perception, yeah. uh, particularly in the U.S. national security establishment, that the window was closing. And so then national security advisor, General McMaster, was basically saying, you know, Kim Jong-un has to back down or, or else the U.S. will have to take military action. And that was, a, and there are a lot of Americans that live, I mean, it's not just the fear that the North Koreans could attack, uh, which is also still debatable what part of the U.S. mainland they could actually attack with their, with their ballistic missiles. But a concern is that there are actually tens of thousands of American citizens who live, not just military, who live uh, between South Korea and, and, uh, and Japan. Absolutely. Uh, and so if you look at it, uh, the framing back then in 2017 that it's the problem over there, and we need to prevent Kim Jong-un from making a problem that can range the American homeland, mm -hmm. that distinction was a little artificial. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you look at the stakes, fire and fury back then right. could have led to this type of situation where I think from a, a standpoint of President Trump coming in and to say that he has removed the threat to the American homeland, from the perspective of the moratorium on testing that the North Koreans have been following, uh, that's a big part of his foreign policy talking point, that he has removed that threat. And all the more reason why these type of summits and one-to-one -one leader meetings, a top-down approach, yeah. is a por huge part of the, the uh, overall foreign policy record that President Trump is trying to cultivate. So how, you, how have you viewed this Hanoi summit? Because, of course, people are saying, well, it, it didn't actually produce anything, it's right. kind of a failure. In some sense, you could say, well, it's an individual fa failure. You could also say, well, we've never actually been able to produce what, exactly what we've wanted. Um, and you could also say more positively that this is a step forward because more communication with the North Koreans means that there's sure. more, uh, ostensibly a little bit more transparency and there's less chance for miscommunication, miscalculation, less chance for war. How do you view the Hanoi summit and what is it meant for North Korea relations with the United States? So the Hanoi summit is almost like a Vorschach test in terms of what do you see? And for some, it's a process. There's a bit of a hiccup, but we can get back into negotiations. Others see it as a complete failure on the basis of a single event. One summit, what are the results? Didn't work out. Summit was a failure. So there, there are many different types of criteria and, and frameworks applied to uh, this, this recent summit. But the part about the Hanoi summit that I think is important from those who are trying to be helpful and offer suggestions uh, and ideas in terms of how to deal with very complex issues. Uh, so there are three important points to highlight. Uh, when you look at 
efforts to engage North Korea in a comprehensive, a package deal, there are three critical elements. One is the denuclearization mechanism, very, very complex mm -hmm. in and of itself. Different layers, what the North Koreans get for what stage, all that is a big part of negotiations that are yet to be conducted in a very detailed manner. Second is a peace mechanism. How do we convert something like a political document announcing the end of the Korean War that key numbers of uh, world leaders would sign, and then eventually get to the idea of a peace mechanism outcome of a treaty. Right, because there was just an armistice. The, the, exactly the, right. we're actually, yeah, They're still at war. I mean, technically speaking, the Korean War continues today. That's right. Okay. And so the third element yeah. in, in the part where you're trying to link uh, these other areas and create incentives under the part of economic development mechanism. Uh, and what we thought would happen at Hanoi, given the preparations for those on the government side, the negotiators and others, uh, we were expecting a very low common denominator type of outcome, which is the launch of a process related to how to link these three mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So that was the, the big picture that we were looking at the uh, official unveiling of this process by President Trump and Chairman Kim at Hanoi. The second part that we we're looking for was the opening up liaison offices. You know, right now, if U.S. Special Representative for North Korea Policy, uh, Stephen Began, wants to meet with his North Korean counterparts, he has to leave Washington, fly to Beijing, uh, from Beijing, change flights, go to uh, Pyongyang, uh, and essentially has to wait and, and uh, do all of the different types of maneuvering to get uh, in contact with his counterpart. Uh, it's very laborious, very time-consuming. So the idea of if we're going to move forward on these three mechanisms and figure out different options on how to interlink these three mechanisms, you need the negotiators and negotiating teams to meet on a more regular basis. So the, the second outcome that we're expecting was the opening of liaison offices for pragmatic as well as symbolic reasons, as you pointed out. Uh, when you have this type of armistice situations, uh, liaison offices, the signal is that these potentially could become embassies and it could lead to formal diplomatic recognition. The third element that we're waiting for was not necessarily the lifting of sanctions. Sanctions, you can do presidential carve-outs and other things, but sanctions over the years have become incredibly interlinked. Mm -hmm. And so... You can't just snap your fingers. Exactly. And, and so the idea was that you would do it off balance sheet. You would actually get the South Koreans in their inter-Korean leader-to-leader agreements, mm -hmm. they've talked about uh, restarting some of their economic development projects that are already existing. So that's one way to, to under the mechanism economic development, to do some of the activities that mm -hmm. would give the sense of North Korea being able to do business as they do more denuclearization activities, uh, more talk about the easing, lifting eventually of sanctions. So that was what we're expecting, a low common denominator, mm -hmm. the beginning rather than some sort of culmination. And you know, this is where we were blindsided when uh, things turned out in terms of maximalist uh, type of uh, statements and then eventually President Trump walking away from the table. So do you see it, I mean, so it sounds like you said that the preparation was right or at least the expectations going in were a little bit more aligned with reality, but we were blindsided by the actual meeting itself and what happened because there wasn't, uh, it was kind of a all or nothing sort of situation. I mean, it, was it still a failure in that way in your, in your in your mind, or do you still see it as a, at least a positive development? It's not like Trump and Kim walked away hating on each other in the way they used to in 2017, right? I mean, is it, or is it still kind of, are we still trying to figure out what we, how we feel about this thing? If we take a step back, uh, I think if you look at what happened uh, in Hanoi, the aftermath of it, I think it's much more serious than it's being depicted. It's not just a simple part of, it's a hiccup or part of a robust negotiation process. Uh, we've seen other instances in, in the business uh, setting. I'm sure there are 
uh, ample uh, examples of negotiators walking from the table, seeking a reset and emerging after some calibration on the sidelines. This is different. And one thing to keep in mind is that in Asian culture, Kim Jong-un is 35 years old. He's a 35-year-old leader of essentially a family business. And so if you interpret what happened in 2017, uh, he essentially became recognized as uh, a counterpart on the international stage, as the leader of a country. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, it was any number of interpretations of madman, eccentric, crazy, so forth. But it's this part of having uh, his uh, image elevated to the level of a legitimate counterpart of other world leaders uh, that gave him the stock, especially when he met with President Trump in Singapore, for him to have a very robust type of engagement with Chinese leadership as well, his counterpart, President Xi Jinping. For President Trump to walk away from the table, it's not just the consequences in the bilateral relationship, mm -hmm. but all of these things are interlinked. Now, Chairman Kim, previously on that kind of parity with other leaders in the region, suddenly he's back to being a 35-year-old kid in, in terms of Who just perception. couldn't who couldn't make it happen, or who demanded too of, much, yeah. Yeah, any number of interpretations. So there's like, a, there's like an image, a reputational cost is what you're saying, um, uh, in among f folks in, in the Koreas as well as in China, the, the people in his general regional neighborhood, where he will be seen as, uh, that there's an image, uh, image hit that he took. There'll be any number of interpretations. Some will put more of the responsibility on President Trump's mm -hmm. plate. Others will see it as uh, Chairman Kim uh, being a little too ambitious in terms of what he wanted to uh, get out of the Hanoi summit. There, there's so many different interpretations, but in terms of the operational aspects of it, uh, the credibility of the North Korean leader uh, has tanked. Mm -hmm. And the question is, to me, the fundamental question, there are many questions, but the fundamental one in the short term is how does he get back up to that level where he was meeting with President Trump as a peer, in the sense that they were both leaders of their respective countries. Mm -hmm. This is the part where there's one pathway that we're very concerned about right now, and that's the preparations at the Sohe launch facility, which has in the past been used for space launch vehicles. So these are the type of rockets that would put a satellite into orbit, but the technical analysts are saying a lot of the technology used for that purpose is also transferable to intercontinental ballistic missiles. Mm. I think Chairman Kim was going to prepare and signal that he's going this route uh, as a way to be taken seriously again. But there's also another piece of it, and this is, from his perspective, one of the advantages of being 35 years old, is this idea that he can do the resumption of the testing, uh, carefully shrouded as a space launch vehicle for the purposes of making sure it's not a clear violation of some kind from the perspective of red lines and bilateral and other types of settings, not the uh, way that it's been talked about in UN Security Council resolutions because any type of these tests are considered a violation. But the second piece of it, uh, is to restore face, and the third is potentially to wait out a U.S. interlocutor that Chairman Kim feels that there's too much risk, that yeah. there could be another walking away from the table. So that's an element that is playing out uh, in, in real time, wow. uh, and that, that has more time in terms of how far it can go. But that's, uh, that's the post-Hanoi situation that we find ourselves in. Now, John, we could, we could talk on and on about North Korea, um, but this, and we will in this conversation, but this show, Snack Break, is about talking about the facts, but also talking about the snacks. Fantastic. And so uh, I am particularly excited by your favorite snack. I think we should move on to it. Uh, it is pizza, not just any pizza. It's pizza from, pizza from Pinocchio's, which is a local Harvard Square favorite. Um, so here we have it. 
Fantastic. Yeah, this is great. And I, you know, people people like to have beer with pizza. I actually think <laughs> Coca-Cola is my favorite drink of all time. Uh, or I should say a cola, an, an, a neutral, uh, unmarked cola drink. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm going to have some Coca-Cola. You can have water if you want some as well. Sounds um, great. So tell me about, uh, now what they specialize in is Sicilian style yes. pizza. Now, I, I love what they do. But don't you kind of always feel that pizza should just be round? <laughs> I I am particularly fond of nokes because this is something that I equate to brain food, and yeah. so from that perspective, uh, it has you know mythological capabilities. Is that right? Yes. What, what, because of the tomato sauce and cheese? What are we talking about here? I think it's a combination. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the flour they use. Uh, yeah. Very fresh ingredients. Yeah. We're, we're doing tomato basil today, and, yeah. and I think uh, when you have a classic like this. Uh, there are certain things that you don't touch by way of classic recipes. <laughs> um, after you. So you were born in South Korea. That's and correct. And you moved to Canada, is that right? That's when correct. you were when you were a kid or an adolescent? Four years old. When yeah. you were four years old, okay. So do you when you were growing up, was pizza available at that time? Or did you discover it uh, when you were four? Um, and how did you feel? We actually emigrated into an Italian neighborhood in Toronto. Wow. So my first uh, experience of Canada was um, through Italian culture. Okay. And the local school that I went to was predominantly you know, Italian kids. Uh, before uh, learning English, it was a little bit of hodgepodge of Italian. And so uh, after school, we'd go to friends' place and you their learn grandmothers, Italian? yeah, their grandmothers mm -hmm. would cook phenomenal spaghetti and other really? types of Italian cuisine to this day is, is a favorite of mine. Moving to Cambridge and Boston must have been actually wonderful given the prevalence of Italian food in the, the North, North End, End as well as other, I mean, there's some really, really fantastic um, restaurants and pizza places around. So one thing about Pinocchio's is actually they're open late, which, um, which you don't find very often in the Cambridge right. and Boston area. That's right. They're, they're fantastic. And if, if you do go towards closing time, you can get some... Uh, Good deals, extra slices really? thrown in. Yeah. <laughs> really? They're just yeah. like, need to take this, we, we're done with this. Fantastic folks over there. Are you a purist with pizza? I am, and uh, I think the way that uh, folks uh, make it over there, there, there is a certain type of sticking to tradition. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, f a big fan of how Yvonne makes his pizza and, and how he prepares the food over there. Yeah. Uh, and the whole idea of a local place th that's becoming increasingly rare. Yeah. And so it uh, makes Noakes all that more special. Yeah. And, and they are, right, they're just in Harvard Square. They're a little tucked away, actually. Um, they're like on a little side street. And I'm glad for that. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise so it <laughs> it's a local gem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to kind of keep it that way. Do you think, or do we know, can you get pizza in North Korea? Absolutely. Uh, what I was mentioning before about the 99%, the upper echelon of, of that 99%, there's a group called the Tonju. These are the masters of money. Folks who have uh, hit it out of the ballpark in terms of being successful as local business people inside of North Korea. So they're the ones who are starting a lot of the services industry in Pyongyang. Uh, my colleague Anna Fifield, who works for the uh, Washington Post, uh, she's been bureau chief in Seoul and Tokyo and now in Beijing. Yeah. Uh, she's the one who basically coined the phrase Pyonghattan. And if you look at Pyongyang, a lot of the luxury items that you can get in any major city in China, you can get now in Pyongyang. But only so, available to the elites, right? I mean, it's something that normal, can normal North Koreans afford that? I mean, what? Money talks. If yeah. you can pay the, the prices for it, uh, you can get in there. But the thing to remember about Pyongyang is it's still the city for those who are allowed to be there by the regime. Uh, so you do, f do have different elements right. of, of society, but only those who are approved by the state. Well, give us a picture of the economic scene of North Korea. It's a very small economy, right? 
It depends on how you do the uh, slicing and dicing. Uh, colleagues at the Peterson Institute, uh, Marcus Nolan and his counterpart, uh, they've been working together a lot on sizing up the uh, North Korean economy and doing their analysis. Uh, Steph Haggard at UC San Diego. Uh, they look at it from any number of different factors, but uh, the idea that this is a resilient uh, economy and yeah. also a type of economy that in key areas is growing, yeah. I think that's the part that tends to be a shock for those who have a earlier notion of North Korea as poor, starving. There are certainly elements and in, in regions of North Korea that still have the food security challenges, but there are pockets of prosperity now that again are shocking if you if you view it from the lens of how normal it is compared to their peers and across the uh, the border region do you, do you ever get tired of studying north korea or maybe i should say frustrated because you know it's like it feels like it's a story that just keeps replaying like you know there's a crisis it's a bad situation um, we ratchet up pressure north koreans start to talk but then they just go and do whatever they want to do anyway and so it's just like a groundhog day situation as a research target, the, the target evolves, and I think that's the part that keeps you on the toes. Uh, it has defied estimates uh, throughout its, its existence as a state. So if you look at the period after the Cold War, you know, North Korea was on death watch in the sense that uh, as a satellite of the, the Soviet uh, world, uh, North Korea would go the way of Eastern European bloc countries. Uh, they didn't, and I think understanding how they were able mm -hmm. to cope and eventually get out of that particular context is an important element. But the key stages, they've defied the predictions. And I think that's the element that kind of keeps you on the toes. So should we, do, do we just need to get, I mean, is one of the major shifts that needs to happen is the United States just need to get used to the fact that like North Koreans are going to want to keep their nukes and we can demand denuclearization as much as we want. But if the regime sees it as a way to survive, do we just got to like deal with it? There are a number of different interpretations yeah. out there, but one part that I think strikes closer to reality as we see it in this uh, short to medium term, we're really talking about arms control. Mm -hmm. And this is a part about making sure that North Korea uh, has this type of stewardship of their nuclear arsenal, something that has been developed very quickly. And that's a framing of it from a lot of the Chinese government think tank analyst perspective, is that we should work towards denuclearization as a goal but in the interim, there are things that we need to prioritize. Right. And so if you piece together how North Korea is being treated in the region, they're viewed already as a de facto nuclear weapon state. Mm -hmm. They're not formally recognized as such. Right. So I think we have to incorporate how they're already coexisting. Right. Exactly. And, and so we really need to talk about arms control first before we talk about denuclearization. This is a part of the diplomatic uh, dance in many respects and how you're creative with it. But uh, there has to be uh, an element of uh, the mechanism approach. I think right now, if you look at the different uh, capabilities, the different uh, facilities, there are many layers of the North Korean nuclear weapons program. So how you do the bulking up of these different types of stages for the basis of linking to other denuclearization mechanisms with peace mechanism, economic development mechanism, that's going to be the art of negotiations. And there's a lot of work to be done there. But this is the idea of looking at how you can have these different options lined up, yeah. and then essentially doing the negotiations and the pros and cons of each of these options. So you do you see the most, I mean, <clears throat> not that we have to suit say here, but do you see the most likely path forward being an incremental um, shift in the North Korean arsenal? Uh, I mean, if, if arm control is, if, is, if it's successful, that that would be the path that is taken um, with a slow uh, removal of economic sanctions? The, there were some indications that we were going that route. 
Uh, incremental is a very loaded term yeah. for uh, those who are dealing with these issues in Washington. But if you look at the idea of if North Korea made a big step, there would be a big incentive in return. Okay. And so the idea was big step for big step, they, any number of ways of dressing it up. But uh, the hope was that North Korea would uh, you know, essentially make these type of big strides. In doing so, create a, a certain foundation of trust that is needed in order to get to the other bigger stages as well. But with this idea that with a minimal nuclear deterrent, yeah. that's something that is not yeah. within reach yet, but yeah. we could get there. And trying to reduce the timeline to get there was the art of the negotiation yeah. as we're going into uh, this And that's process. still a possibility? You think that's still, is that still within reach, do you think? It is, but yeah. the impediment right now, and it's a rather large impediment, is how to uh, try to understand how the North Korean regime and how Kim Jong-un is going to repair his credibility. That's the first turtle. Mm -hmm. In order for him to get back into <clears throat> the type of negotiations that he was in in the past, there has to be this element of repair. And how he's going to repair it is the big question mark right now. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about these issues. Thank you for the pizza. Thank you for the company. Um, it was a real pleasure. It was a great time. Yeah, thanks very thanks. much, Ruth. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of Snack Break was produced with the help of the Media Production Center, Hauser Studio, Tara Cavanaugh, and Harris Passeltiner. Introduction music was composed by Evan Fennessy. To learn more about the show or watch episodes rather than listen to them, find us on YouTube or visit our website at snackbreakshow.com. 